Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On June 13th, Fidelity Investments Canada hosted Focus 2023 Toronto, a day-long live event for advisors featuring insightful insights from Fidelity's portfolio managers and experts. Today's podcast centers on the Focus 2023 session on global small caps, with host Glenn Davidson, VP Regional Sales Ontario, sitting down with Fidelity Global Small Cap Opportunities Fund portfolio managers, Connor Gordon and Chris Malodzinski. We'll hear today how the fund is a high conviction portfolio made up of typically 40 to 80 small cap companies from anywhere in the world. Connor and Chris look for mispriced investment opportunities where the market has underreacted to positive change or overreacted to negative change. And they believe this is a vast but less efficient part of the market with greater potential for active return. Now, please note you may hear references to a few slides that were displayed to the room. And remember, for more podcasts from Fidelity Canada's focus events in both Toronto and last month in Vancouver, you can find those on this Fidelity Connects podcast channel. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Connor, let's start with you. Why small caps, that asset class, why does it make sense for us as investors? Yeah, you know, I think when Chris and I speak about the fund, there's, there's really three big questions that I would want answered if I was sitting in your, in your position, right? So, you know, the first is why global small caps is the asset class. Two, you know, why fidelity? And then ultimately, like, why Connor and Chris? So let's, you know, talk about the first one, right? Why global small caps? Why, sh- you know, we're really excited about global small caps. Why should everyone else be excited? And I think there's a two-part answer. There's a long-term answer and a short-term answer. And the long-term answer is, I believe that everything is cyclical, right? Markets are cyclical, industries are cyclical, companies are cyclical. Leadership in the market is cyclical. And, you know, we can, you know, use history as a guide. So if we, you know, go back and, and think about the 1960s, and, you know, this lines up nicely with decades, so, so it's helpful. But, you know, in the 1960s, you had the nifty 50 growth stocks, not unlike what we've had today. The 1970s was all about energy. 1980s was Japan, U.S. consumer. And then the 1990s was tech, tech bubble 1.0. 2000s was everything, you know, commodities, China, emerging markets. Basically, for the last, like, 10, 12 years, you've had nothing but U.S. growth stocks, tech stocks in particular. You can kind of tell from that pattern, you know, I think there's a really good case to be made for diversification, right? Small caps versus large caps, global versus just U.S., and sectors outside of tech. And that's kind of exactly where Chris and I play. Um, the short-term answer, you know, a lot of people have said, that sounds great, but, you know, have you picked up a newspaper late recently? Like, aren't we going into a recession? Why would anyone buy small caps, right? Here's some facts. So we've had six recessions in the past 40 years, 40 issues. So it's 1980, 1981, 90, 2001, 2007, and 2020, right? So six recessions. Small caps actually outperformed large caps in 2000. They were roughly in line in 2007 and 81, and they underperformed the other three times. So 50% hit rate. On average, they underperformed by 6%. Okay, so that doesn't sound very good. But the average never tells this whole story. You know, I think the key point is, um, A, it's not necessarily true that um, small caps are going to underperform. 
they have already underperformed large caps by 11%. So, so the stocks have already underperformed by, the, by an amount that you would expect to see in a recession. We're already there. And the key point that I want to you know, leave everyone with on this topic is a year from the trough, small caps in all six recessions have outperformed large caps anywhere from 10 to 35%. So if you wait, there's a good chance you're going to miss it. So you need to be positioned there before the coast is all clear, before it feels good to really you know, be in, in small caps. And I think that's why we're here today. Sorry, just one more point on that. Yep. Um, it's like starting point on valuation. So if you look at you know the Russell 2000 as a proxy, um, it's trading at a you know 35% discount uh, to the S&P. So um, I think that matters, and as well as expectations. If you look at you know consensus earnings expectations for the S&P um, in 2024-2025, after being flat this year, um, consensus has it you know compounding at 10% over the next two years. Um, and if you look at small caps, it's more in the mid-single digit range. So, you know, north of 30% discount plus, you know, lower expectations. So, you know, long-term, I think leadership in the market sets up well for the asset class. And short-term, you know, I think valuation spreads are there. Um, and, you know, coming out, you know, leading the next bull, next bull market, I think small caps are really well positioned. But aren't I assuming a lot of risk? Like small caps uh, kind of scares me to hear that. Is a small cap a small cap a small cap? Yeah, I think you know, we need to reframe what small cap means for this fund, right? So the average market cap in the fund roughly is like $5 billion US. So uh, depending on the day of the week, that would actually sneak you into the bottom of the TSX 60. So small caps in a global context are really more like, you know, probably like more like mid caps in a Canadian context. So you know, from a risk perspective, um, you know, I would say, you know, we're investing in, you know, profitable, proven, growing businesses, um, you know, not the speculative junior miner or the speculative uh, tech company with a, you know, project on a whiteboard that doesn't exist yet. Um, as far as like, you know, second question, right? Why Fidelity? And I think if you are going to invest in a global asset class, you need a firm with global resources, right? Global resources, global research global, global um, relationships. And I think that's what we have. We have 140 people around the world that wake up every day trying to find the next great investment opportunity. So um, you know, it doesn't matter if it's in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, Sydney, all our offices around the world, our research analysts are plugged in um, trying to you know, meet, meet in companies, going to conferences, going to trade shows, trying to generate that next great investment idea, funneling it up, to, you know, putting it up the funnel to, to portfolio managers like Chris and I, who then take that research and try and find you know, construct the best, you know, relatively concentrated portfolio to generate alpha for clients. And I think that's, you know, if you look at the performance of the fund that we've had so far, you know, on the institutional side since November of 19, annualized, I think we've, you know, we've added uh, roughly 800 basis points about performance relative benchmark. And I think that's really the, the foundation and the function um, that the research serves and, you know, allow, you know, allowing Chris and I to exploit what we think is a relatively inefficient asset class uh, in global small cap. Yeah, so 140 analysts across the globe, like Connor said, and it's a global go anywhere best ideas fund. So we want to generate all the excess return from security selection. So, you know, concentrated 40 to 80 names, and we want to go there. And it's, so we're not looking to like, you know, get X percent in Europe, X percent um, in North America, X percent in Japan. It's really just the best ideas that we have, you know, coming from ourselves and our analysts and concentrating por that, the portfolio from a bottom up standpoint. And in, in terms of, yeah, like the, the fund and the genesis of it, like Connor and I invest, you know, very similarly. Um, and we got paired together in the middle of 18 to launch the institutional trust. Um, and we have, you know, very complementary uh, backgrounds, as Agnes said. So we have a rotation program every few years. We, you know, rotate onto a different sector. So I did, you know, metals and mining, consumers, financials, 
sectors that I didn't cover, Connor covered, so um, industrials and, uh, and IT uh, technology before he became a generalist. And so putting us together gives the fund a really good balance, as you'll, you'll see, I guess, over the contribution over the last uh, number of years in the, uh, in the institutional trust. And Agnes had talked about the development of an, uh, how you get hired and then you become an analyst, you do all the different sectors and then hopefully get a diversified portfolio. Is it true that when you cover those different sectors, it's just when you feel that you're in a sweet spot that you get yanked from that and put into another. You almost get comfortable and you're put into another sector. That's that's true on the rotation, isn't it? That's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, you know, it takes, you know, really two to three years to really wrap your head around, around a company um, and around an industry to really understand, you know, the drivers, you know, the winning management teams, who's positioned well. And as soon as, you know, you really figure it out, start making money for clients, then you go on to the next sector and you do it again. So... The thinking is, you know, after three sectors, you've seen all the super sectors, and you really have a, a really good basis uh, for managing a diversified fund. Chris, where did you get the global interest from? Because obviously for Andrew Marchese to say, let's, let's bring you guys to the world or bring yeah. you to the world, where did you have the interest and how did you show that to him? Yeah, so, you know, as an analyst, um, you cover a sector, but you also manage a sleeve of the uh, Fidelity Discipline Equity Fund. It's a primarily Canadian fund. 80% of the content is in Canada, but with the remaining 20%, you can go globally. So I think it was, you know, using that 20%, generating ideas in, in the U.S. and around the world uh, really piqued my interest. And um, also covering metals and mining um, with the resources that Fidelity has. So I was able to really just go around the globe, see all the different companies. And, you know, through that process, it really just opened my eyes to new markets. And Connor, what was your connection to the globe? You know, I, I had kind of done the... the the rotation program, right? So uh, roughly three, four years, I covered three sectors. And then I took a bit of a detour. We had, you know, the, the firm had been launching some, you know, small mid-cap product and, you know, we needed some help. I think some of the portfolio managers, you know, thought it could be um, beneficial to have some help. So I became a small cap general. So I was working kind of as like a support to, I mean, Patrice, who was on here earlier, North Star with Dan DuPont, Joel Tillinghast, as well as Small Cap America with Steve McMillan. So, you know, I kind of got the small cap and then kind of got to move around and, you know, I was kind of, you know, got to see everything. So I did everything outside of banks uh, and commodities, basically. So a complete generalist and whatever got thrown on my desk that day, that, that was what I looked at. So, you know, we got these reps in and you just, you end up seeing, when you meet like several hundred companies a year, you kind of get this, you know, Rolodex of companies that you like and it really kind of just builds every single year. And I think when Andrew came to us, Andrew Marchese came to us, Chris and I, in um, August of 18, 2018, and said, you know, we think there's an opportunity here, right? You've been working together for a decade, you have complementary backgrounds, as, as Chris has kind of highlighted there, or you can see on the slide. It, you know, we think there's an opportunity to give you the biggest asset class possible, so global, and uh, an inefficient asset class, small caps, right? And take your security stock selection skills and pair it with Fidelity's global reach to try and generate you know, a lot of alpha. And, you know, that's what we've done. And I, you know, I think we haven't talked about it yet, but I think one of the things, what is, what is the fund, right? So what do we do that's a little bit different? And I think when we describe our investment strategy, it, it's kind of quality plus change equals mispricing, right? So we have a, you know, a baseline we call quality and, and, you know, that's profitable, predictable, growing businesses. And I kind of mentioned it, you know, just when you meet several hundred companies a year between the two, you know, to multiply that by two, you can kind of narrow a list pretty quickly on the types of businesses that you want to invest in. So, you know, we, we start with this baseline of quality, and then it's a lot of just waiting. And, you know, I think the change aspect, the change in dislocation aspect is important here because the market in general is pretty efficient, right? I don't think anyone can really argue that or argue against that. But, you know, if, you know, what we want is we really focus on situations 
where there's a change or a dislocation that allows us to see something different, right? If you want to beat the market, you have to do something different than the market. So we are really looking for inflection points, something that allows us to peer into the future a little bit and see something that the market doesn't see. So what does that mean, right? It could be, you know, it could be a company has a new product, right? It, maybe they have a new management team. Maybe they're buying or selling a company. They're doing a divestiture. Maybe there's a spinoff. But something is happening where the structural earnings power of the business looks a lot different than it has in the past. And I'll maybe give you a couple of examples, right? Just to highlight you know, what it is we're doing. So um, you know, I can talk about a stock that we've owned in the past. It was one of, at one point, it was the biggest uh, stock in fund. is a company called Darling Ingredients. And Darling, you know, we're after lunch here, so I hope I don't spoil anyone's stomach, but they're an animal renderer. So they grind up animals, dead animals, and put it into pet food, essentially. So next question. Uh, <laughs> right? Keep going, keep going. So, you know, most people would say, okay, that does not sound like a very good business, right? And I'd follow this, kind of going back to, you know, why do, we, why do analysts have long tenure? Why do we see all these companies? I had first looked at this company in 2007 as an intern. Mark Schmel owned this company back during the agricultural boom. Essentially, it, was, you know, it wasn't a great business, right? You can kind of think of it like, they, they grind up the dead animals. They take used cooking oil out of you know, uh, McDonald's and basically put it into, into pet food. And we were doing a, me a meeting with the CEO. And it's kind of like, why do you keep meeting these companies every single year? And the answer is because something can change. So we were doing a, a, a meeting with uh, the CEO, Randall Stewie, in 20, late 2018. And you know, we're 50 minutes into the meeting. And it's kind of like, you know, is there anything exciting going on here? And you know, Randy, are you, are you excited about it? And he goes, well, we haven't talked about G DGD yet. It's okay, well, what's DGD? And I, you know, I've done the prep, you know, it's like on slide 20 of the investor deck. It's like, oh, it's diamond green diesel. Okay, what's diamond green diesel? It's like, well, instead of putting it in pet food, we figured out that we could partner with Valero, the refiner, and turn the fat into renewable diesel. I said, uh, you know, it still sounds like a science project, like you're making any money here. He said, yeah, we're actually making a lot of money. We're making, you know, we're getting about a dollar a gallon. I said, okay, how much does it cost to build one of these plants? I said, well, it costs $3 a gallon. I, mean, I could do the quick, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's like 30% return. That sounds pretty good. So actually it's two bucks because the government's also giving us a dollar tax credit. So we're making two bucks on three. So we're making 60% returns. So, okay, like, you know, is this a science project or you actually have, you know, production? It's like, oh, we're, you know, we're at 75 million gallons. We just finished like you know phase two. At, like I think we're going to 150. We we're doing like, we're doing the R and D, taking it to like 450, and like we phase four, phase three will take it to a billion gallons in like three years. So you can kind of do the math pretty quick, right? The company was doing you know 400 million dollars in EBITDA, and three years in the future they were you know going to go to pick a number. They take 50 percent, but it was like you know add a billion to that, and no one was paying attention because they're they were an animal company. Mm -hmm. And if you look today, so, you know, stock, I think, tripled. We made the investment. It was the biggest investment in the fund. And it was all of a sudden, you know, it was thematically on trend, obviously, because for green energy. But the change was we have a new product. There's an inflection point. People aren't paying attention. Three years from now, we think that the company is going to earn three times more than the, than the market. And we found that because we cover basically every listed cover company everywhere, like, and a lot and of companies don't. Yeah, and it's like we have these people, you know, we have 140 analysts. We have portfolio managers that have... 10, 15, 20 years of experience meeting companies every single day. And you, you always keep it on your role decks, right? Because to your point, like ex excluding this, like you probably never would invest in Darwin. It's not a great, the core business is not great. It's hyper capital intensive. <laughs> but the ironic part is 
the, what made it a bad business is actually what gave it a competitive advantage of the new mm -hmm. business because they had they touched 35, well, 30 to 40 percent of all the fat that gets generated in the United States. So to recreate that, someone would have to come in and spend multiple billion dollars on the infrastructure to actually get the, the raw material supplied to be able to do the renewable diesel part. Are so they already using this fat stuff? Like, is for me? It, does, do the highways smell like bacon now? Like, is it all? <laughs> well, are the, they using the benefit. So the benefit is it's it's the lowest carbon intensity <laughs> of any fuel. So if you are in California, basically you're putting it into heavy duty trucks because mm. right now you know you can't use electric engines and trucks because the payload is too heavy. It's mm -hmm. just not economic. But instead of using diesel, you can you can put it into existing engines and have same performance with basically no carbon emissions. That was kind of the genesis of it. So, you know, that's kind of the, the type of thing that we're looking for on, you know, a positive change, right? Mm -hmm. You know, on the other side, it's kind of like, you know, DeMont, right? So, uh, dislocation, negative dislocation. Like, what are we looking for? And we always say it's like some sort of temporary problem that's fixable. So, DeMont is a Danish hearing aid company. And there's like four companies, five companies in the world that make hearing aids. They're all in Europe. And DeMont was a great company. We, like, you know, as a healthcare analyst, I'd followed this company for years Always wanted to buy it. It was always too expensive. And then right as the fund started, something happened. They got hit by a cyber attack. So, you know, the press release comes out. We've hit by a cyber attack. Basically, the next six to nine months, we're screwed because our ERP system basically doesn't work. Okay? Stock trades down to 15 times earnings. Right? It's not complete deep value stock, but for the quality of the business, you know, it's a great price. So we, you know, we kind of start doing our, our, our research, right? Is this a temporary or permanent problem? And, you know, you can pretty, you know, the, share, the market shares don't change that much. You know, as I said, it's a pretty consolidated industry. Everyone, you know, likes to play nice in the sandbox. Everyone makes high margins. No one really wants to get price competitive. So you knew that they were, you know, it's kind of like a docile competitive environment. And you could look out and say, okay, everyone's worried about the next six to nine months because earnings are going to be awful. But, you know, 12, 18 months from now, it's a fixable problem. So we were pretty confident that we were buying a great business that, you know, it always grown revenues, call it 7 8% a year. Margins have always ticked up a little bit because they get price and excess of cost. And we could buy that at like a 7% free cash flow yield. So, you know, you're staring at that and I'm like, okay, well, 7 8% earnings growth with that 7% free cash flow yield, you know, you're staring at a 15% prospective return before you get any multiple re-rating. That's kind of what gets us interested. And that's kind of, you know, what happened. You know, this thing like more than doubled from when we bought it to, to, to when you know, we started exiting the position. But those are kind of two examples, right? It's kind of, we're always, we're, we want that quality business or that inflection in quality. And then we're always just waiting, right? We're waiting for that moment to make the investment where something changes to get us interested. You say we, I'm going to pick up on the question that's coming yeah. from our audience. And it has to do with, are you in silos or are you collaborating, arguing, fighting? How does this work? Uh, Chris? Yeah. So uh, the fund is split down the middle. So Connor and I, each manage um, half the fund, but there is a lot of collaboration uh, that goes on because, you know, I'm not siloed to, you know, the sectors that I have experience in. So if I'm looking in the industrial sector or the technology sector, I can go to Connor and be like, hey, I found this idea. Is it worth digging into? And he could just, you know, spend 15, 20, one hour looking at it and say, hey, yeah, this is worth worth uh, looking at. It's worth spending the time on or, you no, know, don't waste your time. Move on to something else. So yeah. I think we like um, to say, you know, spheres of influence. Yeah. Right. So, you know, kind of going back to that, um, our historical experience, right? So, you know, if you look at our holdings and you see an insurance company in the fund, that is probably Chris. Um, that's probably Chris's idea, right? If you see, you know, a healthcare 
or, or a tech, tech company or a software company, it's probably me. What we have built in, though, is a devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at funds and collaborating, you know, we can say, you know, hey, Chris, have you, you know, pick, pick your, you know, this REIT you're looking at. You know, have you considered X, Y, and Z, right? And you can kind of poke holes in each other's thesis a little bit. And, um, you know, ultimately, we each have discretion uh, to pull the trigger, but you've got a, you've got a built-in um, devil's advocate to really kind of play against, collaborate with. Connor, yeah, and I guess, sorry, ahead, just, you know, to follow up on that, I guess one of the questions would be like, well, maybe that could like skew you offside from a risk perspective. You know, if you guys are both generating ideas in one certain sector, um, the fund's going to look a little lopsided. But um, every, you know, three months we sit down with our head of risk and our CIO um, and just really look at all the factors, all the risk exposures in the fund um, to make sure we're cognizant of, of everything we're doing and, and every exposure that we're taking on. One of the, I mean, one of the questions we often get asked, right, is um, you growth investors or you value investors? And the unsatisfying answer that we uh, give is uh, we're neither. <laughs> so we are, it's our intention to be down the middle, right? We um, are eclectic uh, in what we own. You can kind of see from that darling example. Um, and the intention is to have nice balance in the portfolio. So that goes balanced by sector. It's balanced by geography. Um, and it's balanced by factor. So um, when we're looking at uh, stocks, one of the things that we want to do is we want to have multiple buckets. So I mentioned, you know, we call it growth at a reasonable price. Like, you know, we want stocks where it's just that like we have these good businesses that we think can compound, right? And we're going to, you know, our, our return that we experience will kind of match the earnings growth of the business. And then we have those other buckets, right? We have that positive change bucket. And then we have that, you know, um, that dislocation bucket as well. And when you... You know, when we when we, when you can when you can dip and dab into different buckets, you aren't beholden to making a big factor bet, right? You know, the last few months it's been nothing but tech and AI, right? Um, we we really want to generate the returns from bottom up security selection and not make a big bet on factors. You know, growth, value, rotation. Who knows? Um, you know, sectors. You know, is, you know, tech, industrials. Healthcare, you know, we, we really want it to be germane from the bottom up and really be focused on that specific um, bottom up situation that we think can generate alpha. Yeah, and just sorry to add on to that as well, because uh, I think it's, it's pretty important, is that every most, I mean, 95% of the ideas that we generate, unless it's one of those compounders that you grow with earnings, there's always a evaluation argument to own it. So either relative value uh, to somebody, some other company in its sector or versus history, um, something that can give us a reason for the multiple to re-rate. So we want to make money both from the earnings growth of the company as well as the multiple re-rating. And I think that if we um, do that well, it should you know, generally um, result in pretty good alpha over time. And just one more point on, um, on the analysts, because I, th I think we can kind of hammer this home enough, um, is that when we look at a lot of the competing funds out there in the global space, they're generally two portfolio managers with you know, three or four guys in their office. So you know, you got a team of, of five guys in one office. Um, and I think it's it's really a, you know, a huge competitive advantage to the fund having 140 analysts across the globe because they all have defined research coverage. Um, they all publish notes on every company they cover. And that's a global research note system. So every time, you know, we wake up, we go into the office, we can see all the notes that come in from Asia, from Europe, uh, from companies we own, from new perspective ideas. Um, and it really gives us a big leg up on the competition. I was asking Patrice that. How do you consume all the information that's coming in through the different mediums? But also, you'll travel out to different markets. And I remember hearing a long time ago, Ned Johnson, rest in peace, who was our chair, um, said, there's no budget. 
We have a, by the way, your sales team has a budget. <laughs> portfolio management and uh, analyst teams do not, in that nothing should get in the way of you doing what's needed to do the right thing for the, sh for the unit hold. So do you travel a lot, and how do you consume all the information that comes in? Yeah, look, we travel a ton, right? So like just this week, or last week, we had 14 people go on a, you know, a tour of Silicon Valley. Right, I think next end of the month we've got. You know, so I don't, I don't know how many companies they saw, but it was basically like, you know, you go and meet, yeah, a couple dozen companies in like four days, um, and then you know, end of the month, you know, we've got a uh, Midwest industrials trip. So a lot of the industrial companies in the U.S. are kind of in like you know, Chicago and and you know, surrounding states. So we have a, a big group going there. Um, you know, I think it's just you know, Fidelity's access and then kind of leveraging that access either through. Um, headquarter visits or uh, company conferences. So, you know, one thing that, you know, Duke Japan, uh, Japanese stocks have kind of been, a, you know, topic du jour the last, you know, few weeks. And, um, you know, September, we're trying, you know, we're getting a, a trip going, right? Mm -hmm. So we haven't been able to travel. Well, no one's been able to travel to Japan mm -hmm. uh, until recently, until last month um, since COVID started. So, um, you know, gonna, you know, I was, I, the last time I was there was 2016. So um, it's going to be nice to kind of you know, we have a list of companies that we want to see, and it's going to be nice to actually go and meet the companies in person. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think I've seen a, a budget or a, uh, you know, the cost of an airline ticket. Doesn't that, if, if, if it's for investments, right. we are going to always spend. Right. I think that's really important, and being a private company helps uh, tremendously as well. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago working with Joel Tillinghast. What did you learn from that? You know, I think one of the big things that we, you know, and Chris and I pay a lot of attention to this, um, you know, it, it's... Uh, you know, I, I have a saying uh, that I tell the analysts that model, you know, the model tells a story. You know, I think when people, you know, musicians read sheet music, when I see financial statements, I see a story. And um, Joel was always big on paying attention to numbers, right? And the, the, the numbers should tell the story. And, you know, when, when, you know, I think one of the big things that Joel had was, um, you know, it's big today, but like presented numbers. Do they actually do they represent the actual profits and cash flow, or are they made up like adjusted numbers, something that management's trying to fool you with, right? Um, so we pay a lot of attention just from a forensic accounting perspective on you know what are the actual economics of the business, right? Are they turning profits into cash flow, or is it made up? Um, and I think in small caps, you know, you you can't you you know the reality is you you are dealing with smaller companies. These are, this is not Johnson and Johnson or IBM. Um, you do need to pay a little bit more attention to. Um, uh, Profits, cash flow, impact on the balance sheet, et cetera. So you really got to pay attention to the numbers. I think would be one of the big things that right. we'll talk. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, sorry, just yeah, on, that, on that point. Um, I guess if you look at our performance over the last three years, I mean, we put a big emphasis on, on gap earnings um, and free cash flow. Um, so if you look at performance in 2020, 2021, there's a lot of speculative companies, heavily adjusted numbers, looked, you know, not super expensive on the adjusted number, but as soon as you got down to, you know, backing out all the adjustments, they're quite expensive, and you know, 2022 was really the year where a lot of those kind of speculative investments really derated. So, um, I think you know, by focusing on gap financials on free cash flow, it should smooth out returns uh, for clients over time. Question that came in from the audience and has to do with financials. Obviously, some banking pressure in the U.S. and is that a headwind for small caps going forward? It's a headwind, definitely for certain sectors. Um, I mean, if you see. You know, commercial lending, um, you know, if you look at the real estate sector, a lot of these uh, developers really can't get access to financing. Um, it's going to be a headwind for, for NIMS on the, on the banking side. Um, thankfully, you know, we don't, we don't play there. So, you know, there's no bank exposure um, in the fund. 
Um, when I think of headwinds for you know companies, the indices, um, certain certain individual names going forward, um, you know companies with a lot of floating rate debt, companies that are dependent on financing, just you know the banking sector in general with uh, with their deposits and questions on. Um, you know what the beta is for those deposits, whether they're going to leave with interest rates going up. You know that those are the areas that have a lot of headwinds, but we don't play in areas with headwinds. We look for you know tailwinds. So um, you know we're more interested in the insurance space, um, where as as interest rates increase, um, the earnings power of a lot of those companies also increase. They have you know contra- contra- contractual float, right? So. They're not uh, susceptible to, you know, deposit depositors leaving, um, and you know we're looking for the mispricing. So when the market's not paying too much for these companies, um, those are the opportunities that, that we get interested in. I think you know um, it's counterintuitive, but when you have examples like or you know um, moments of volatility in the market, right? So, so with Silicon Valley Bank, for example, or the regional bank crisis, that is fantastic for us. Right. We like to say that volatility creates dislocation and dislocation creates mispricing. So um, when you get these periods where the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater because there's a sector issue or there's part of a market and you get indiscriminate selling in some parts of the market, that is fantastic for this fund. Um, and I think that's what we've been able to do historically. And it's because when great bargains get thrown up, particularly in the small cap space where you know, potentially when you are on the wrong side of liquidity, people needing to get out and for you know forced or, or um, indiscriminate selling, we can be on the other side of that liquidity and take advantage of it. And we can take advantage of it quickly because we have already done the work. Because we have those 140 people around the world who've already scrubbed their models and had the valuation work done, that we can act quickly. Uh, Johnny, could you take us to the slide that's on the uh, top 10 holdings? I know you've talked on some stocks, but yeah. maybe we'll use that as a jumping-off point to talk about geographic because you are global small cap yeah. opportunities. What's the geographic dispersion look like right now, or distribution? And uh, maybe uh, where you're overweight a few sectors and underweight a few sectors. So we're underweight in North America. Again, we invest where we have an edge, where there's mispricing. Did I say underweight? Yeah, overweight. yeah over, overweight in North America. And, and uh, Canada, we still, we still have a, an overweight in uh, as well. But the way we think about it, it's where the, the businesses operate, where their cash flows are derived from. So, you know, there, there could be, you know, companies that are headquartered in Canada but have global exposure. So we can get that edge because we know the management teams. We, we really know their corporate history. Um, we see an obvious mispricing. We're not going to sacrifice returns um, to, to go elsewhere. So, um, you know, to, to show you how kind of trivial this stuff is, uh, one of the companies that we own um, in the fund, RB Global, the old Ritchie Brothers, uh, is a fund in Canada. Sorry, is a, is a company in Canada. And last week, S&P uh, just re-domiciled them for industry purposes down to the U.S. So is it a Canadian stock? Is it a U.S. stock? Well, their business operates primarily in the U.S., you know, 85% of the revenue. So you would think that it would be um, a U.S. stock. Well, you know, two weeks ago, it was a Canadian stock. So, you know, that's the way we think about it is, you know, where these businesses uh, operate to really give you that, that global exposure. And when we can get, you know, a, an edge on corporate governance, great management teams with an obvious mispricing, you know, that's where we really gravitate towards. Yeah, I think also, you know, when we, if you can look at our positioning over time, we like to say that the positioning is, you know, o, um, point in time versus over time. So we are global small cap fund, obviously, but we tend to think of ourselves as, as small cap investors that invest globally. And I think that when, we, when, you, when you change that lens a little bit, it's, as Chris said, we are not, you know, if 10% of the benchmark is Japan, it isn't, okay, we need, you know, let's, Japan looks interesting, we need to go find Japanese stock. It's really, where are the opportunities? So the geographic allocation should shift, and it will shift because we're opportunistic, it will go wherever the opportunities are. And the same thing with, with sectors, right? So if you look right now, we are, you know, have been heavily overweight industrials. Part of that is a, is a classification in our opinion, a bit of a classification error. 
because you have you have three subsectors within industrials, two of which are, are capital goods and transports, and one is professional services. And if you think of professional services, um, one of the it was on there, but one of the biggest companies we own is FTI Consulting, so the biggest debt restructuring company in the U.S. Right, so it's a professional service. Doesn't really sound like a cyclical uh, company, you know, a cyclical industrial company, for example. But if you go back to, to where COVID was, we were heavily, heavily overweight consumer companies, right? And that kind of you know has transitioned from maybe you know at the end of twenty one and kind of transitioned down. So uh, none of the sectors allocations or geographic allocations is set in stone. It's really let's be opportunistic, let's be let more agnostic as to where a company might be headquartered, and just let us go out and kind of see the biggest opportunity set. So the way we like to say it is. If you are invested in a Canadian small cap fund, you're only seeing 5% of the opportunity set. If you are in a US small cap fund, you're only seeing 50% of the opportunity set. You know, why not take the biggest opportunity set completely unconstrained and global, and then let Chris and I kind of go find the best stocks regardless of where they happen to be headquartered. So global small caps are a very inefficiently covered asset class. It's not the case at Fidelity, but it allows us uh, a competitive strength Obviously, the two of you have the gateway to the world with all the fidelity research uh, and uh, access to companies and everything else. So we can buy this product through you. We can buy it in an ETF now as well because it's obviously available in a mutual fund. But as of about a month and a half ago, it was available in our one of our first suites of actively managed ETFs as well. So congratulations on the success that you've had through the institutional solution. What you've had so far, which has been wonderful on this uh, retail solutions as well. And we really appreciate you both being here today. Chris and Connor, thank you very much for being here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.